Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about the marathon that took place at the 1904 Summer Olympic Games in St. Louis, USA. Now, it'll probably surprise you to learn that I'm not the biggest fan of sports, generally. Shocking, I know. Truly shocking. I'm sure you, you, know, you weren't expecting that one. But this story is that good that even the nerdiest bloody couch potato you can imagine might get a kick out of it, I reckon. Obviously, back in 1904, the whole idea of Olympic Games was uh, yeah, very new, very much in, in its infancy. And so they hadn't figured out a lot of stuff like, for example, uh, the rules, I suppose. And, and so there was a lot going I mean, there was so much going on with this Olympics that we'd, you know, we'd find absolutely, we'd find it laughable these, these days. It was essentially five months of Calvin Ball, but nothing from the whole story, the whole you know, farcical affair that was the 1904 Summer Olympic Games, nothing topped how utterly absurd the marathon ended up being we had people coughing up blood getting attacked by dogs stopping for naps taking rat poison stealing peaches and even taking cars to the finish line so honestly this race it sounds like a monty python sketch but it is all actual factual real life cold hard history so let's get amongst it and find out exactly what happened here at the 1904 olympic marathon we're going all the way back to well 1904, which is probably pretty... Actually, no, we can go back a bit further. Go back to 1896 with the foundation of the Mod Olympic Games. Um, I guess we go further than that even. If you want to go really deep, we can go back to 776 uh, BCE and uh, talk about the ancient Olympic Games where obviously, you know, naked men would bounce and jiggle and, and slap around at top speed for 192 metres and uh, would be rewarded for their efforts with... An olive leaf wreath, which uh, is pretty ordinary, I reckon. But no, no, look, we'll stick with the modern era when a, a French bloke named Baron Pierre de Coubertin decides that he wants to revive the old Olympic Games. And so he establishes the International Olympic Committee, which you've probably heard of, still around today. I did some research on this bloke, on de Coubertin, to find a, a you know sort of quick, pithy and entertaining fact about him to put here. But after quite a long, you know, very long time searching, over 10 minutes I spent, um, I, I couldn't find any, anything at all. He seemed to be one of the most uninteresting sort of just straight up and down blokes you're ever going to find in history. He was a teacher, he was a historian, he was an aristocrat. So I suppose, you know, look, he and I had a lot in common, really. But uh, he did uh, he did establish the IOC. I'll make Takuba Tung. He establishes the IOC. And the first modern Olympic Games are held in Athens in 1896. And our winners there are given silver medals, which is definitely better than an olive wreath. But come on, Pierre, mate, come on, get it together. Where's the gold? Um, the second games are held in Paris in 1900. Still not given medals there. They're actually given cups instead of medals. Um, and Paris by, the, Paris, by the way, in 1900, it featured everything from ballooning to cricket to a swimming obstacle course. Uh, there was also car racing and motorbike racing. And the shooting event, right, used bloody live pigeons as target. The, the, I mean, the Paris games sound like they're an absolutely wild old time, but that's not what we're talking about today. This brings us, of course... To 1904, when the uh, third Olympic Games were held, or sorry, the Games of the Third Olympiad, if you want to be very fancy about it, were held in St. Louis in the USA. Now, originally the plan had actually been to have them in Chicago, but the people organising the Louisiana Purchase Exposition, which is better known today as the 1904 World's Fair, they cracked it. They weren't happy with this at all. 
um, the the Louisiana Purchase Exhibition, the World's Fair, was going to be held in St. Louis. And the organisers, they weren't happy with having two major international events going on at the same time in different cities. And when the IOC, they didn't obviously care too much about that. They're like, well, whatever, you just, you know, get up, pull your socks up, get up, stop carrying on like a pork chop, mate, get on with it. Um, and they weren't going to change it. But then the World's Fair organisers were just like, all right, fine, no worries, Pierre, old son, no worries. We'll just have our own big sporting event at the World's Fair, see which one gets more people turning up, stick that in your pipe and smoke it. And uh, as a result of this, the IOC backs down and, and de Coubertin, he decides to move the games to St. Louis after all. And that was that. So... Before we talk about the marathon specifically, I want to talk about the games, the 1904 games in a more general sense, because I want to talk about some of the other other stuff that happened there, because again, there's a lot to unpack here. Number one, first thing, it was planned to run for almost five months, four and a half months this event was going to go on for, with uh, with at least one sporting event happening each day. Utterly ridiculous, but there you are. Um, unfortunately, I had to look through all the sports and stuff that went on there, and uh, unfortunately, there weren't any truly silly sports. There was the tug of war, and there was golf, and there was a weird croquet-like sport called roke, uh, but nothing too bonkers there. Um, however, it got off to a very bad start. The whole thing got off to a very bad start, uh, as hardly anyone turned up to the opening ceremony on the 1st of July. Oops, don't know if they just didn't advertise it or what, but, uh, you know, anyway, that's the way that it went there. Um but for the games more generally, some pretty cool stuff happened. Some pretty questionable stuff happened as well, but some pretty cool stuff happened. Um, a bloke named George Acer managed to win himself six medals despite only having one leg. And all of his medals were in gymnastics. So he's done pretty bloody well for himself, snagging six medals, doing flips and jumps and stuff with a wooden leg. Good on you, mate. Uh, you know, George Acer getting it done there. Now, another bloke named Frank Kugler also put up a very impressive performance, uh, winning three medals in three entirely different sports, wrestling, weightlifting, and tug of war. Now, obviously, that sounds very good on paper. If we, if we, if we dig out, dig down a little bit deeper, you find it's not actually that. I mean, you know, obviously, there's a, a fair bit of crossover between these sports. Anyway, the main thing is to be strong um but one of the medals doesn't really count because uh it was a bronze medal that he won in a field of exactly three competitors but still you know look he had a go and he got on the board so that's the main thing in the discus contest as well uh two blokes they chucked the old frisbee exactly the same distance to the centimeter apparently and so the judges not really sure what they should do here they gave them both an extra throw to settle it which i thought was a very neat resolution that one um but uh, as I said, there's some, some pretty questionable stuff. And I'm not going to get into it too heavily, mainly because I'm probably not the, the best voice to be talking about this sort of stuff. But there was a bunch of, there was a bunch of, uh, of events held uh, by, uh, by people from you know, non-European backgrounds that were called the, I think they were the Anthropology Days. And there's a whole lot of stuff there that really just doesn't, hasn't, hasn't sort of uh, come out the wrong side of history. And again, I don't know if my voice is the best one to be talking about this sort of stuff. So if you want to read more about it, you certainly can. I'm not trying to minimize it. I'm not trying to sort of pretend it didn't happen. But I just don't know if I know. I, I'm, I'm, it's not even. I don't know. I definitely know I'm not the right person to be talking about this sort of stuff, and it's not really what we're going for here. So do have a look at it, the anthropology days, but again, not really within the scope of this episode. Anyway, other stuff that happens much more in the scope of the episode, I'll let you know, wasn't all fun and games, as the aquatic events were held in a nearby lake, and, uh, well, you know, think that's not that bad, surely, just swimming around in some dirty old water. No, well, it was a lot dirtier than you'd think, because... The cows, some of the cows that were being exhibited at the World's Fair, were also hanging out in the lake while blokes were, you know, splashing about in it. And uh, four of the athletes that were swimming away uh, ended up dying of typhus as a result. Oops. So, yeah, not a, not, a, not a great result there. Anyway, that's enough of the fumbling around with the foreplay. Let's get to the good stuff here and talk about the marathon itself. Now, the marathon was scheduled to take place on the 30th of August, two months after the Games opened on the 1st of July, remember? And it will be run through the countryside around St. Louis over a distance of 40 kilometres. 40 kilometres there, just shy of the official length of uh, today's marathon's 42.195 kilometres. I mean, come on. 
Come on, what are you doing? Just round it off to 42.2. Do you really have to make it easy for the runners by giving, you know, extra five metres off there? No, come on. Come on, what are you doing? Anyway, um, for those who don't know, actually, by the way, the whole concept of a marathon comes from the, the first Persian invasion of Greece in 490 BCE. Uh, legend has it that a bloke named uh, Pheopides ran all the way from Marathon, where the Greeks had just beaten the Persians, all the way to Athens to deliver news of the victory. And after arriving, apparently, he dropped down stone cold dead just like that. Now, I don't know why the blokes in Athens needed to know that they'd won the battle so desperately and so quickly. But I mean, come on. Mate, Pheidippides, just send him a Snapchat. Don't run yourself to death. What's going on there? Anyway, so this race, the new marathon here in uh, 1904, it's set up and has a grand total of 32 athletes, representing four, four na- only four nations. The US, obviously, the UK, Greece, and Cuba. Now, obviously, there are a lot of, there's a big Greek, uh, Greek component because the Greeks are very into the Olympic Games. The first games are held in Athens, and, and so obviously a lot of them come over there. The U.S., obviously, f- sizable contingent there because a lot of them are able to come locally. Not a lot of other people attended not only just this marathon, but the games more generally in St. Louis because this is the time the, Russia, uh, the, the Russo-Japanese War was going on, and it's a very tense time in international politics. And as a result, not everyone was you know really ready to go and fiddly fart around with Olympics on the other side of the Atlantic. So uh, as a result, there wasn't a hugely well-attended Olympic Games, and you can see here by the the people who were here at the uh, at the marathon only four different nations 32 different people but i want to talk about the british and also the cuban athletes here because the british athletes not actually British. They're from South Africa. And two of them, Jan Masciani and Len Tanyane, they're the first ever black Africans to compete at the modern Olympic Games. And they turn up to run the race in bare feet, which is, you know, obviously a real power move on their part. Um, as for the others, some of the Greeks, as I said, a lot of Greeks over there, some of them have never even run a marathon. They just turned up to have a good time. And there's one Cuban bloke. There's one Cuban. And I'm going to talk about him in, a bit later because I'll tell you what, he's a story unto himself. He's a story in his own right, as you'll see. I'll talk about what, what was going on with this Cuban bloke in just, in just a little, uh, little bit here. Anyway. They all line up the starting line, and at 3 past 3 p.m., the starter's pistol goes off, and they're away. Off they go down the track. Now, there are a few um, interesting little quirks to this race that we'll get across as we as we talk about how the individual races fared here. First of all, it's stinking bloody hot, and it's stinking bloody humid. It was about 33 degrees, which is over 90 degrees Fahrenheit, or 306 Kelvin. Um, not ideal running weather, obviously, so things off to a bad start there. Secondly, the organisers of the race had decided to use this opportunity as a bit of a science experiment on dehydration, if you'll believe this, and so there was only one place where the athletes could have a drink. After running almost 18 of the 40-kilometre route, they were fine. there was finally a little bit of a water station there for them to rehydrate. And on top of this, the water that was being served not particularly clean. A lot of the athletes weren't local, so they weren't used to the, you know, the, all the interesting flora and fauna that lived in the water there. And they're not going to have a very good time at all when they start drinking it. I'll tell you this, and that'll come up a bit later on. Thirdly, the roads that they're running on are all dirt, and they're as, they're as dusty as all get out, and there are cars and horses cutting about on them in the, in the lead up to the race, and then, of course, there are cars that are following the marathon runners as they go along. So great big, big, billowing dust clouds that the runners are having to uh, run through, having a terrible time. And fourthly, if that's a word, the, the roads weren't closed the roads were still open you know they weren't closed especially for the marathon meaning that ordinary people are going about their daily business so the runners have to dodge carts and carriages and pedestrians and animals and all sorts just to get across the finish line so in summary we've got blokes running through what is basically a small crowded dust storm drinking very small amounts of disgusting water and all of this in 33 degree heat so that's the stage set there. Anyway, they're off and away, as I say, and the race has begun properly. We'll go through all the notable athletes and their stories one by one here, I reckon. And I'll tell you, you what, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what, you better strap yourselves in here because it is going to get buck wild up in here very, very quickly indeed. We'll kick things off 
with a bloke named William Garcia, fella from California. Garcia is, you know, he's running along. He's pretty having a pretty bloody terrible time. He's coughing and spluttering and not 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 really enjoying himself here uh, until he keels over after having run a fair distance. He's got about 30 clicks down the road, but then finally he can't go any further and he keels over and he lies there in the middle of the road, basically abandoned. No one knows where he is. No one's spotted him or anything else like that for quite some time until finally a passerby happens upon him by pure luck out in the middle. Of, you know, as, again, remember, they're running through the countryside, middle of nowhere right and so very luckily someone comes past and sees him there Garcia's found he's coughing up blood and absolutely hating life it turns out right that running through all the dust that was being kicked up, it had caused him to start hemorrhaging internally. He had breathed in so much dust that it had started to rip up his esophagus and stomach lining. And so if he'd laid there for much longer, another hour or so, he probably would have died. As it was, he was taken off to hospital and he spent several days fighting for his life, but eventually he made a full you know, full recovery, so good on him. He got, he got, he got over the line. Well, actually, he didn't get over the line in a... Not in not in a, in, in a figurative sense, not in a literal sense. He very much did not get over the line in a, figure, in a, in a literal sense. Anyway, next up, an Irish-born American by the name of John Lorden. Now, poor old Lorden, he'd hardly got off the starters box before it all went pear-shaped for him. He started munting everywhere. He's blowing chunks left, right, and centre. And again, a lot of people think that has to do something with the water because the water quality in this area wasn't that great. Never mind, you know, he didn't even reach the water station. He's just he's just sick from from the get-go, having a terrible time. The dust certainly would have been helping. Anyway, you know, he's spewing up everywhere and he decides he doesn't want to stick around to fight through it. He actually gives up straight away, deciding he's had enough of this rubbish and he just wants to go home and forget about it. Now, he's not finished with marathons, however. He actually went on to run in a bunch more of them, despite obviously this disastrous result. But as I say, having a big old munt just just down there, down the road from the starting line there in 1904. But he's not finished with marathons. He got involved in a couple more, including including one in 1909 where he was just he was leading for a long time he's, you know he's ages and ages ahead of the rest of the field but then after having hit the wall a bloke named this is not a joke a bloke named Ronald McDonald caught up with him took, and, and overtook him and beat him by about 10 seconds. It conjures a very, very entertaining image. I have to say, clown running along in big old clown shoes with his face paint on that sort of stuff and beating out this poor bloke there. Anyway, anyway. So we've got one bloke almost killed uh, running this stupid race, another bloke spewing his guts out and packing it in. So let's move on now to Lynn Tanyana. You remember one of those African fellows I told you about before. Now, he had entered into the race with without any shoes on, with bare feet. Again, huge big power move for him here. He's going, oh, I don't even need shoes. Don't even worry. Run on these dusty, rocky roads. No worries at all, boys. Um, but despite these conditions, right, despite the terrible conditions, the dust, the heat, the whatever else, he's actually, he's cruising along very nicely for much of the race. He, he, he might have actually made a really good go of things, but unfortunately, this wasn't to be, as Taunyane was chased about a kilometre and a half off the course by a dog, which rather obviously strongly affected his result. Just just imagine that happening today. Imagine that, you know, Olympics there, coverage, bloody Channel 9, you know, all the cameras, I think it's Channel 7 actually, I'm not sure, whatever channel it is, all the cameras pointing around, like Kathy Freeman bloody blasting down the track, going for the gold for Australia, and then a dog barrels out of nowhere wanting a bloody schmacko off her. Unbelievable. I mean, think of that. Um, something of a side note, by the way, the bloke that was chased off the course actually might not have been, uh, it might not have been Tanyane, it might have been uh, Jan Mashiane. The journals, the journalists at the time who were reporting on the event, they, they might have stuffed up a bit with the identity of the runner. And this was a bit of a running trend with these Afri- African athletes there, unfortunately. The press doing an even worse job than me, I think it's fair to say, with uh, you know pronouncing that, even spelling their names properly there. So these poor blokes didn't get, uh, didn't necessarily get uh, you know the coverage that they deserve, but they did pretty well. I mean, I think they finished ninth and 14th, respectively. So not too bad, not, not, a, not a bad effort for those two blokes. Anyway, so far, 
One bloke coughing up his lungs, one bloke munting his guts up, and one bloke being chased off by a dog. But of course, of course, my friends, it doesn't stop there. It is time for the story of my favourite athlete at the 1904 Olympic marathon. It is the Cuban bloke I mentioned before. His name was Felix de la Caridad Cavallal y Soto, uh, but he's generally known today as Andarin Cavallal. And uh, back in Cuba, this bloke, believe it or not, was just a postie. He was a postman. He's going around delivers, delivering people's mail and their postcards, whatever else. But uh, he seemed to be a pretty athletic bloke. This maybe he's you know maybe he's running his postal route. I don't know. But uh, he, he generally he's in a good he's in good nick, and he decides that he wants to actually have a crack at this marathon. But he needs to raise money to get there, of course, make it over to the games. So what he does, he puts together this event where he runs the entire length of Cuba. Now. Multiple sources confirmed that this was the case. I did check this. It did seem to be the case that he did run the length of Cuba. But what I was not able to determine was in which direction. Because obviously running the entire length of Cuba is very, very impressive if you go from east to west or west to east. Not so impressive if you're running north to south. You know, I mean, I, I very happily lay claim to having ridden across an entire European nation in a single day. Uh, from uh, along the, the, the widest margin between the two borders as well. Um, it, in my view, it is immaterial that that country was Liechtenstein, but that doesn't really come into it because at the end of the day, I still rode across an entire country in just three hours as well from, you know, along the longest point there. But I'm going to say this, if you are going to make those claims and if you are going to say, oh, yeah, no, run, ran across all of Cuba and you're not telling people it's north to south, it's going to ring some alarm bells. Anyway, anyway, he raises the money he needs uh, and he travels. That is not a joke, by the way. I have... I have ridden across Liechtenstein, and I regret saying that it was Liechtenstein. I should have just left it as I've ridden across an entire European country in a day, which is still technically a true statement. Anyway, he gets the money he needs to. Uh, he, he, he pulls together this money to make it over to the United States. He travels over there, but unfortunately for our mate, he he makes a couple of iffy decisions on the way to St. Louis, and he ends up gambling away all of his money. In New Orleans, and because of this, right, he's absolutely skin flint after having, you know, got rid of all his money at the at the you know game of craps or whatever it was. Um, Carvajal is forced to hitchhike all the way to St. Louis, and he can't even afford him. He can't even afford to buy himself any food on the way. So he arrives. He's starving. He's just lost all his money in New Orleans, and he gets there only just in time. He actually he, he rocks up almost as the race is about to begin, and. Because of his whole situation here, you know, he hasn't eaten in 40 hours. He's having a terrible time, but he's still dressed in all his regular clothes. He's in shirt, pants, beret, and a great big pair of clomping, you know, huge big boots there. He's not ready to run. He's not in his bloody, you know, Nike dry fit, bloody double Air Jordan. You wouldn't run in Air Jordans, would you? I don't know. I'm not a sports person. I don't, just runners. The thing, the white shoes that you put on when you want to go faster than walking. I don't know what. Anyway. What he does, and poor old, poor, poor mate, poor old Carvajal, you know what he does? In order to fit in with the rest of the runners who are obviously there in their, you know, latest and greatest running apparel, he cuts the bottom of the of the legs of his pants off to try to make him look a little bit more like running shorts. A poor bloke. It doesn't really work either. He's still there in his beret and his great big billowing white shirt, and he just looks like a bit of a turkey because he's in these weird, like, three-quarter length pants instead. But all the same, off Carvajal goes. The pistol fires. He's off like a shot as quick as he can go. And despite not having eaten, as I say, nearly two days, 40 hours, he does a pretty bloody good job of things too. However, 
his hunger gets the better of him ultimately, and so he starts to have a, sort of a sniff around for a bit of food. And, and there, are, obviously, there are lots of people watching the race, and so after a while, he figures out, oh, geez, I'll, I'll go up to them and I'll see if any, anyone's got any tucker for me. So he goes over to a couple of a couple of people, and he's having a chat in his broken English, trying to find some food. But, you know, he's chatting, chatting away happily to people here and there, but after a while, he spots some people in a car that are eating a couple of peaches. And so he goes over to them, and he says, G'day there, you blokes. Tell you what, I've got a mighty bloody hunger. I'll tell you that, mighty bloody hunger I am. And those peaches, they're looking real nice, eh? So, so you know, Kai one or, or, you know, what's going on? And they go, no, 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 mate, come on, get your own. You, aren't you supposed to be running the bloody, you know, the, the race that's going on here anyway? What, what's going on there? And, and Carviel goes, yeah, okay, fair enough. Yeah, fair dues. I was just, oh, hang on, wait. What's, just look, what, what's, what's that over there behind you? He grabs the two peaches and he runs off down the road. He's stuffing them into his mouth. He's running. He's nicked them off him like that. A clear, you know, broad daylight like this. But um, as I say, even after having get the getting these uh, got these peaches into him, he's got a mighty bloody hunger. And two peaches aren't going to be enough, are they? No, no, no. So he's in luck. He's in luck here because what happens next is right. He runs past an apple orchard and he sees these apples just hanging off the trees. He goes, "Oh, look at this! Free, free lunch." No, people say no such thing as a free lunch. There they are, just waiting for me. So he goes over, snags a couple of these apples, and while he's still running along, he's chomping. So just imagine this. Just again, try to imagine this in the twenty first century, Olympic Games, twenty first century. You got people cruising along the marathon, stopping to. Pull fruit off the tree. Bloody have a snack, a bag of Doritos while they're running along trying to finish this marathon. Anyway, so what happens is he gets these apples into him. Easy as that. But then twist. You're not going to, you'd, you'd never expect this. The apples are rotten. And so they give him a very, very bad tummy ache. He's, having a, he's feeling as crooked as a dog. And he decides in order to you know try to feel a little bit better before he finishes the race, he lies down under one of the trees in the orchard and has a nap trying to sleep off the sickness. Can you believe it? So after this little snooze, luckily for our mate here, he gets back up. He's feeling much better. He's got a couple of peaches, couple of, uh, a couple of apples, nice little fruit salad in, in, his, uh, in, his, in his bread basket there. And he fires off back down the road. And after everything, after gambling away his money, after hitchhiking to the event, cutting his pants up so he could run, stealing peaches, eating rotten apples and having a quick nap, he still manages to come forth. So a pretty bloody good effort from the Cuban postman, I would say, I would think. Anyway. That's enough silliness. That's enough silliness. It's time now to get down to the cold, hard business of talking about this race's winners. Oh, yes, sorry. Winners. Yes. That's, no, that is correct. Winners with an S. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. What happened is this. Towards the beginning of the race, things are looking very good for a bloke named Fred Laws. Now, Laws is a bricklayer uh, who uh, he had to actually do all of his training at night after he'd uh, after he'd, you know knocked off for the day, but he still got himself in good shape for the race in St. Louis, and he won a uh, not a qualifier but a race back over in New York that uh, that that paid for all you know paid for all the expenses of sending him to St. Louis so he could run in the marathon there. So he's 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 in good stead, and he's actually one of the favourites for this race there, and and no wonder either as he you know darts off from the from the the starting line and he's doing a good job he's, he's sort of leading the race for a while there but after almost 15 of the 40 kilometers of the race right he starts to get very bad cramps and again this may have had something to do with the water because a couple of other runners as well weren't having a great time with the old stomach cramps there so laws unfortunately he can't keep going and after trying after trying to battle through these cramps 
again, he chucks in the towel, he gives up, and he gets a lift back towards the stadium in one of the cars that's driving towards the marathon because he just can't keep going. So he gives up. Luckily, there's a car there that's going to go the rest of the way, and so he jumps in there, and, and off he goes. Now, he's feeling a bit better after this. He's, you know, waving and smiling at the spectators, having a great time as he whizzes along in his car. Very exciting thing to do, driving a car in 1904. I mean, you know, it's quite a treat, but... Uh, he slowly but surely starts to feel a little bit better as he's driving along there like that. And uh, so he end up, ends up feeling so much better, in fact, that when the car breaks down not far from the stadium, he gets out and he starts running again. Now, some people, they realise what he's done. They realise he's just cheating outrageously, driving half the way, getting back out and running along, right? They realise what he's done. And they start yelling, get off the track. You stop cheating, you buy your, buy your bloody monger. What are you doing? But he ignores them completely. He blasts into the stadium at top speed and he powers across the line, arms raised, having a great time, winning the race very handily indeed with an excellent time of just under three hours. The, cry, the crowd are loving it. You know, an American has won. Get around him. Alice Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt's daughter, comes out, puts a wreath in his head. He's done it. He's won the whole thing. What a legend. Get around him. Where's that bloody gold medal, mate? Give it to him. Quick, smart. Oh, wait, hang on. What's this? People coming in, yelling about him cheating. She is just, Alice Roosevelt is just about to give him the gold medal. When the staff are alerted to what's happened, they find out that he's bloody driven most of the race in a car, right? And so the crowd, they all start booing him. And Laws, who seems to have been a bit of a stirrer, has a big old grit on his face. And he says, oh, no, look, don't, you know, just, just having a bit of fun. Just a big joke there. Just a bit of a prank on you blokes there. But he's disqualified. Of course he's disqualified. But after the whole thing is over, it actually gets a bit more serious for him here because he ends up being banned for life by the Amateur Athletic Union. And this is bad news for someone who obviously, you know, obviously very talented runner there. So, luckily for Laws, the ban is overturned not long after because there are two different. There are two things that happen that, that sort of contribute to this ban being lifted. Number one, Laws he comes out, he apologises. He said, "Look, just a big joke, just a bit of a you know, just a bit of an old prankski there for everyone to enjoy. You know, trying to get the likes, the subscribes up on my YouTube channel. So I thought it'd be you know, sort of nice, you know, relatable content people are going to get into like that. Hopefully, it was going to go viral." And he says, look, I didn't intend to go through with it. I, was, I was, wasn't going to keep the medal. It was, just, again, just a joke. So that's the first thing. He comes out and he admits that, you know, it was, it was all just a bit of a stitch up. Number two, the second thing is a lot of people, a lot of people, a lot of his mates, other people who know him, they come out and they say, honestly, this bloke is exactly the type of clown who would find pulling a, a stunt like this very, very funny. And so it doesn't, it's it sort of with all these character references he was getting that he, again, was a bit of a stirrer. It seemed pretty clear that he was just having a lean to them and he, he wasn't actually trying to cheat. He was just trying to, you know, again, stir the pot a little bit. So he, the, the ban is lifted and he ends up being able to run in races later on. Anyway, if old mate Laws didn't win, which is, you know, a fair enough place to land on the whole thing, seeing as he was driven in a car for half the way, let's not forget, who did win? Well, I'll tell you, a bloke named Thomas Hicks was neck and neck for law, with Laws for much of the uh, the beginning of the race. However, after about 16 kilometres, Hicks is struggling and no bloody wonder. Let's not forget, these blokes given no water at all until they'd run, you know, 17 kilometres, uh, almost halfway uh, the, through the whole thing there. And the conditions are just bloody horrific, as I've said, you know, time and time again. So he's about to keel over when some of the support staff, they come to help him. But again, they refuse to give him any water. Instead, what they do is this. They sponge out his mouth with distilled water to keep him going. Now, I don't really know what distilled water is or what it does, but I know that my dad used to put it in his car. So maybe that's what these, you know, these handlers were, were sort of thinking when they gave it to Hicks. Like, oh, this will, you know, this will get him going again, just like you get your car going. I don't know. But in any case, it does get him going, and, and Hicks keeps going somehow until he's about 10 kilometres from the finish line when he starts to very, very seriously flag. He's, he's having a hard time, you know, just putting one foot, foot in front of the other. And it is here, my friends that we have the first ever recorded instance 
of performance-enhancing drugs being used at a sporting event like this. Hicks handlers give him some rat poison. More specifically, strychnine, right, which in small doses acts as a stimulant, but in large doses will just kill you and is used to, you know, poison rodents and other vermin, whatever else. Now, they wash it down with some egg whites, and after this, Hicks is off again. He's off again like bloody Marion Jones he is. He's charging it, well, in more ways than one, I guess. He's charging down the track, having a great time. But it's not long It's not long before he's flagging again. Obviously, the strychnine was a bit of a, uh, a, a one-and-done type situation here. So the handlers, they give, him, uh, they give him the news. They try to G him up a little bit. They give him the news that Laws has been disqualified, and now... He's in the lead. Hicks is in the lead. He's leading the charge. He gets another blast of the old rat poison and a bit more, a few, a few more of the old egg whites. He sucks them down. And this time, he chases it all down. This whole big con- concoction, he chases it down with some brandy. Finally, in order to really get him, you know, a bit, of, a bit of zip and zap. And, I mean, think about what do you need on a day like this to energize you? Get a, how about a nice warm bath? They get warm water and they, they bloody soak him in it, right, for, to try to get him up. And, and for some reason it works. He sets off like this. He's bloody he – apparently he's having a, a, a much better time of actually getting it done here as he, as he, as he you know, powers on towards the finish. But, again, he's, he's really it, – he's starting to run down again like a clockwork monkey. He's just running out of energy and sort of, you know, slowly like that, trying to, you know, trying to keep, get himself going. By the time he's within two kilometres of the finish line, this poor bloke, he starts losing it completely. He starts hallucinating that the finish line was still 30 kilometres away and he's panicking he's never going to make it. He gets given more brandy and more egg whites. I've got no idea how he didn't bloody spew this all up everywhere. And he slowly dragged himself into the stadium and towards the finish line. The winner, Thomas Hicks, finally crosses the line with a time of three hours 28 minutes and 53 seconds, but it is how he crossed the finish line that is the most ridiculous thing yet. As he enters the stadium and as he's heading across again towards the finish line there, he is so close to collapsing that his handlers actually have to come out to the track to make sure he just doesn't fall over on his face. And you know when you when you put a small dog in some water and it starts doing the doggy paddle, the swimming there like that, and then you pick it up and it keeps sort of kicking its legs around like it's swimming? This is exactly what happened here with Hicks. He is unable to go on under his own steam. And so his handlers, they come, they come over to him and they pick him up and carry him in the air across the finish line while he's jerking his legs back and forth about there like in the air like he's still running. Can you believe it? Doesn't matter, however, he's done it. He's won the whole thing. What a legend. Get around him. Where's that bloody gold medal, mate? Give it to him. Quick smoke. Oh, oh actually, wait, no, he is literally about to die. Let's go and get him to the doctor's first aid. Now, thankfully, Hicks survived all of this. He, you know, he did. He did live to fight and run another day, despite having used, you know, performance-enhancing drugs. He is still considered the winner of the marathon to this day. So, I do want to put things in perspective, however, you know, and his because his time of three hours twenty-eight minutes thirty fifty-three seconds. It's not well particular. Look. I don't want to be too nasty, this bloke, but he did come in over half an hour after the previous world record, and the official world record today is two hours, one minute, and 39 seconds, set by Eliud Kipchoge in uh, in 2018 at the Berlin Marathon. So, yeah, look, Hicks, he did his best, but between the rat poison and the, you know, egg whites and the being carried over the line situation, uh, it, was, it was always going to be a tough sell. Anyway. He's seen to by the doctors and he gets patched up, thankfully, and he's lost four bloody kilos. Think of this. He's lost four kilos while just running this race. And after the whole thing, he was quoted as saying, Never in my life have I run such a tough course. These terrific hills simply tear a man to pieces. 
Now, the story of Hicks and Laws, right, doesn't end in 1904. Laws obviously disqualified. He got in a car. You're not allowed to do that in a running race. That is uh, that is a, a very much a point of emphasis uh, when it comes to foot races. You aren't allowed to get in a car and drive. And Hicks, you know, he, he scoffed down some rat poison and still managed to get across the line. So good on him there. The story between these two men doesn't end there, actually, as it is, because the next year after Laws' ban was lifted, they both ran in the Boston Marathon, which seems, to the best of my knowledge, to be completely devoid of dog attacks, rat poison doping, car-based cheating, and all the other stuff there like that. And in this race, Laws beat Hicks fair and square. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. And for once, the sports fans line is actually relevant because for once we talked about sports. It'll be another 48 episodes until we uh, we do again, I can assure you that. Anyway, that is that for another week of half Ass History. Thanks for hanging out with me this week. It's always fantastic to have your company. And uh, we're going to close the show, as usual, the boring, rubbish, housekeeping stuff here. Halfasshistory.net, get in touch with the show there. I'll send you through stickers if you send me through an email. That contact form is there if you've got any suggestions for uh, for show ideas or anything else like that. Or you just want to get in touch with some feedback. I really do appreciate the people getting in touch. And, of course, those stickers still available if you just send me your uh, your physical address. I'll send them through to you free of charge. People supporting me on Patreon, I cannot express how much it means to me to have people giving me money for this dumb podcast I, I thank you so very very much for that and uh, i'm very pleased to tell you that it did work and the podcast is now available on spotify i've managed to invoke some kind of ancient eldritch magic and i just filled in a form and submitted an rss feed but it felt like arcane eldritch magic i'll tell you that was bloody difficult but the podcast is now there just like a real podcast along with all the rest of them on spotify so you can subscribe and listen to it there but that's that. I reckon that's just about it. Going to do it for the, do us for this week. We are going to close out the show as usual, the way we always do, with a question posed on Reddit. We talked about the Battle of Marathon uh, in, and obviously ancient Greek history there. And uh, Stuza99, Reddit historian Stuza99, has a question about the Battle of Marathon. They want to know, <clears throat> wouldn't the Battle of Marathon have been easier if the armies hadn't been trying to run 26 miles at the same time?